Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me in the studio today are my colleagues Leonora Walters and Kate Bearley. We're also delighted to have a special guest on the show. Adrian Lowcock is Head of Investing at AXA Wealth. In today's show, we're going to look at how to invest overseas with global and regional smaller companies funds. We'll also report on a tussle between the Investment Association and the funds industry that could set back progress on clearer fund charges. We'll also have an update on Finsby Growth and Income Trust and an interview with uh, BlackRock Smaller Companies. But first to this week's Portfolio Clinic. Mr and Mrs A are about to retire, but their portfolio is heavily weighted to cash. They have about a million pounds invested in self-invested personal pensions and individual savings accounts. And they're holding this portion of their assets in a mixture of direct shares, investment trusts, exchange traded funds, um, individual bonds and bond funds. But they also have another million pounds, lucky them, in low risk products such as national savings and investments, income bonds, premium bonds and a range of cash accounts with a variety of providers. Um, The couple say that their basic living living expenses are around £45,000, but they'd like to produce income of £50,000 or more from this portfolio. So they're going to have a really comfortable retirement. They've just got to make make sure that they, they invest in the right way. And Adrian, you are one of the experts on this portfolio. What did you think of it and their their holdings and their strategy? Well, as as you say, they're they're in a very good position, I think, for retirement. Uh, I think the first thing you need to do is just make sure you're using your ISA and SIP allowances and pension allowances to the maximum, particularly as they're looking to retire and they've sold the business. There might be an opportunity to put up to uh, £180,000 per person as long as they've had that income so that uh, into a SIP. And that's if you carry forward from previous years. But also, between the, the couple, they've got 34480 pounds in ISA contributions each year to use, um, which may grow with inflation. Um, and that, that's a way of sort of being able to sort of boost that portfolio and get a, a, a tax efficient income coming back into it from, from investments. Uh, looking at the portfolio in generally, uh, I think one thing they can do is they've got cash and they've got this national savings and they should use that to sort of provide a cash buffer so that they don't have to draw money out of the um, investments quickly or in times of urgency and in times of crisis so they're not forced to they're not forced sellers they can sort of choose when to 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 take money out um with regards to the portfolio um i think looking at this uh, this is quite a time-consuming portfolio. There was a lot of individual shares, investment trusts, a few funds, a lot of individual lines of bonds, single lines of bond stocks, which take an awful lot of monitoring and maintenance. Um, I, you know, I think the whole point of having a portfolio, particularly in a retirement, is trying to have one that perhaps uh, doesn't require too much maintenance. Uh, can be, you know, looked at on a single spreadsheet on a single page, um, and probably doesn't need monitoring more than perhaps two or three maybe four times a year at tops and that's usually just to check it and make sure it's doing things right not to not to have to have a major overhaul or anything so uh, I think with the bonds I would sort of look at consolidating them into a range of funds um, and letting the fund manager make decisions on bonds because particularly where we are in the bond market uh, yields have come down they, uh, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of concern about a, a bond bubble um, yields are probably going to remain low but they going to rise if interest rates rise. So there is 
uh, some risk that there will be a, a potential capital loss in bonds. If you've got a fund manager looking after that element of the portfolio, they're going to be able to make decisions to be able to sort of move from different parts of the bond market to protect against any volatility and any any potential capital rises, uh, sort of capital losses that may arise from uh, interest rate rises. What about their, they have a like a, a 50-50 cash equity kind of split really, don't they? Well, with equity, I'm including the bonds in that portion. Mm. So like half the portfolio in cash for retirement. Is that being too cautious? Uh, it's, it's, it's a... I mean, it depends on your risk, doesn't it, and what, it, yeah. what and how much money you have. And this couple actually has a lot of money. But would, would it be a good strategy generally to just have half in cash? I think um, half in cash does seem like a lot. I think we have, you have to sort of look at what their objectives are and, and what their attitude to risk is. So here they said they're quite happy to take or have been happy to take higher levels of risk. But they sort of question that going into retirement, and that's the right thing to do. Um, but then look at what cash is and where it's at. So at the moment, inflation is minus 0.1%. So you know, cash is actually returning a real return at the moment. Uh, but it's not a great high return. Um, and it, it's not set to get very high in the next few years. Infl- interest rates may rise. They're not going to go very high. Um and inflation, who knows where it's going to be in the future. If oil prices rise from here, then we could see higher inflation in a few years' time or even in a year's time. So I think the way I would look at cash is is using perhaps keeping some of the national savings products. There's no harm in having a few things. They've got the, the portfolio size to sort of have 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 a few different assets and hold a bit of that. Um, so my view was sort of, you know, they've got the ability and scope to have you know, maybe around three years income in, in this portfolio um, of, of what they're looking to get. So they're looking to get 50 to 60,000 to cover their sort of normal expenditure and other items. So I'd say that's around 180,000 pounds. I'd sort of say, well, have around 200,000 pounds. That gives you the freedom to live off the income for three years. Uh, so you've got that in cash at any point in time in your retirement. And then you've got a little bit extra to sort of those those luxury holidays, those, that, that active lifestyle that they want to, to, to enjoy. And this gives them the flexibility to sort of have have the money on, on hand that they need in, in, in the short and medium term, up to three years, um, whilst having um, more money going into their ISAs and possibly topping up their pension from that fund uh, and, and having that fully invested, but not necessarily ha- being forced to target high income in in what is a low income environment so you can construct a portfolio that has still got an income focus has a bit of growth but isn't overly aggressive or adventurous and isn't being forced to do so and and you've got the time three years of income to sort of drip feed back into the to that cash pot over the years that should also help protect against future inflation so you've got a bit of bond exposure a bit of property exposure and a bit of equity exposure to help give diversified income stream and some and some inflation protection and growth. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned these are alternative type assets as as one thing that the uh, Mr and Mrs A didn't have enough of in their portfolio. So we're looking at things like property and infrastructure and time and time again in portfolio economy we do look at income portfolios that don't have exposure to those areas what what are the attractions of property and infrastructure well the main thing i mean is if if you look what happened in the sell-off this summer sort of concerns raised over the strength of china growth and basically had an impact on outlook for economic growth globally and which then has an impact on the uk and the impact on that is if you own equities your company profits might fall 
and their dividends might fall. Um, so having just pure equity income exposure, you're sensitive to the business cycle and the the economic strength. And there's still a lot of uncertainties uh, over the global economy following the financial crisis. If you hold other assets, so property, for example, it's, you have a different sensitivity to the to the income stream, and it's a diversifier. Uh, with other sort of uh, diversified assets, income assets, you get um, there are different types of inst- infrastructure you can get. You can get things like airplane leasing. You can get hospital uh, leasing, um, and you can effectively tap into long-term uh, projects that are uh, sort of wrapped up in a contract, but provide a reliable, steady, uh, almost pretty identifiable and understandable income stream that tends to be upwards only anyway, so they tend to grow over time. They get uh, with inflation or, or a factor of inflation. Um, and that, that again, is another diversifier. It's a bit more like a bond, but it's got an, it's a mixture of a bond and equity, but they behave differently. The underlying asset behaves differently. So if your uh, income stream sort of falls off in the equity world, You've got it. Another one in 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 other assets that that can sort of isn't as sensitive, so it won't be as volatile. So it helps smooth over and diversify. It's like diversifying a portfolio. Diversify your income stream. Okay, so if you haven't looked at that in retirement, then those areas are are ones to look at. Thanks very much, Adrian. Um, now moving on in this week's big theme. We look at how to go global for your smaller company's exposure. Um, Investors have a tendency to look first to their home markets. And in some cases, we see them getting overexposure to the UK. So for smaller companies exposure, look overseas to the growing number of global and regional smaller companies funds available. Um, And some of these have made very strong returns, as Leonora Walters found out when she was writing the feature. Um, Leonora, could you tell us what are the um, the reasons why someone should go for small cap investing in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we ser- people certainly shouldn't ignore the UK. Um, I think the idea here is perhaps people have um, very large portfolios and a lot of UK exposure could, let's say, add in a bit of overseas exposures on the small cap side. Um, and I would add, though, this is people, let's say, of large portfolios, long time horizons and really high risk appetites because smaller companies are higher risk and if you go overseas you know it's even more higher risk because you throw in things like um, currency risk and in certain parts of the world political or geographic risk Um, but you know if you do fall into that bracket um, you know smaller companies could really boost your portfolio um, there's a lot of evidence that over the long yeah. term they really do outperform, outperform don't they? Yeah, I mean in developed markets in particular, um, you know they're often accused of being slow, but smaller companies are an exception in developed markets. If you can offer exposure to more entrepreneurial and dynamic companies, and particularly at the moment, um, smaller companies typically are more plugged into the domestic economy. So if there are sort of problems with international companies and global markets go down, they might not be as badly affected so um, I think these are general points for you know all smaller companies the the reasons for overseas ones I think you alluded to um, they diversify and there is a risk that people in the UK let's say with a, a lot of investments are getting some overlap um, I think the important thing for people to remember though is that you know with all investments that have a potential for higher return there are a lot of um, high risks as well um, smaller companies, for example, can't weather downturns as well because they're not as financially strong. 
um, they can be more volatile. They, um, they, I mean, they might, um, you know, only rely on one product, and if that product goes out, you know, out of favor, they can't sell it, then that's the end of it for the company. So, you know, you really have to consider these things before you put your money in. Um, and um, yeah. So, how should um, investors go about accessing mm-hmm. um, overseas or regional funds? I mean, what what kind of what kind of areas are we looking at here, and what kind of funds? Um, well, we can either go for a global fund, um, which might be, you know quite a good option because it's a you know it's a one-stop shop for um global smaller companies and um i suppose you have a a dedicated and experienced team doing your you know your geographic and top-down allocation which is actually really important to returns if anything more important than stock picking um it's also good let's say for people who perhaps have a high risk appetite maybe not such quite a big portfolio um you can you know with like the purchase of one global fund you can get a nice exposure that said, if you've got a really large portfolio and um, you know you're very confident in your ability to asset allocate, um, there's plenty of overseas smaller companies funds um, in areas such as Europe, um, Japan, also the US and Asia. But um, I think advisors aren't keen on those at the moment. Use is expensive. Asia, um, well, markets are tanking. So um, the, the kind of areas they like at the moment are Europe and. Um, Japan. Oh, I so, can see Adrian nodding yeah. his head there. Adrian, would you like to tell us what what where you think people should be going for their smaller companies' exposure? Yeah, I think I mean if you've got a smaller portfolio, the best way to do it is to get global exposure. Um, but if you're looking, um, one of the advantages of having a, um, a, a sort of country-specific fund is the fund manager can get to know the area really, really well. And, and having that on-the-ground knowledge is essential. So I think areas like uh, uh, Europe is, is, is particularly quite interesting at the moment. Um, we had quantitative evening start and uh, you know, it looks like it's going to maybe set to continue. Um, and it's, a, it's an area that's been very sort of... Um, um, uh, sort of on the turn, shall we say, for want of a better word. Um, smaller companies, they tend to be domestic focused, so you, you you don't necessarily get the sort of the volatility that you've had in the summer. They've been a bit more protected. Um, the US is a big market, but it, it hasn't quite performed as well as people had hoped. It hasn't benefited from the stronger dollar um, uh, relative because it's a domestic focus. They don't have to concern themselves so much about that. Um, and, and Japan is an interesting area, but very, very volatile, so I'd be sort of careful on that one a lot of the funds there uh, smaller company funds can be hugely volatile so you can make a lot of money in a year and then lose a lot of money the following year are there any particular funds that you really like in this in the small global smaller companies area um as as a sector one i do quite like the uh, threadneedle european smaller companies fund uh this was uh formerly managed by uh uh, david dudding who uh who did a very good job there and his uh peer um mark heslop took it over in 2013 um he's a guy who's worked with david dudding for since 2008 so it's a, it's a sort of inherited team uh, uh fund if you like uh this basically looks just get uh, um uh, capital growth um uh, looking at smaller companies on the european exchanges um focus on strong businesses sustainable uh, uh and competitive advantage um with the ability to raise prices effectively so companies that can weather a storm Okay, that sounds like a useful tip for readers. Um, and you can obviously read more about um, what Leonora thinks are good options in the article. Um, now, um, the one thing that we are always asking investors to watch, um, in the, this is in the reader portfolios and in, in our funds articles, is the cost of investing. 
Uh, but when investing in funds, it's not actually that easy to pin down what you're paying for um, because there are several layers of charges. Um, first, there's the annual management charge, which goes to the fund manager. And then there's the cost of administering the fund. And then there are other costs that the manager incurs in dealing shares within the fund. And there may be lots of other extras as well that we just don't get to know about as investors. Um, and then there's the big one, which is the cost of holding your fund on a platform, which can vary depending on the platform. So um, over the years, the funds industry has made several attempts to sort this out and we still don't really have a satisfactory way of looking at things. And now campaigners are saying that um, a recent clash between the Investment Association, which represents um, most UK fund managers and some of the fund managers themselves, could set back some progress on fund charges. Now, Kate Bealey has been looking at this story. Um, Kate, what's happened? Um, well, basically, it, this kind of tussle has emerged um, between the Investment Association and its members. Um, and it's all kind of centering around former chief executive Daniel Godfrey, who has been trying to um, bring about some reform, um, particularly connected to fees um, and the transparency of those fees. Now, it emerged um, last week uh, that big fund houses Schroders and M&G were considering not um, renewing their membership, so leaving the organisation, which kind of exposed this big fault line um, within within the trade body. And then by the end of that week, um, Chief Executive Daniel Godfrey had been asked to step down. And um, the board, the IA board, has released this statement saying that, in fact, members were uncomfortable with his approach and his, his style of engaging with members and uncomfortable with his agenda. And the thing that fund houses have been particularly uncomfortable with is this push to make fund costs more transparent. Um, They say that that's a kind of retail issue and, you know, institutional clients are more concerned with other things. But obviously campaigners are saying that this is a big, this is a, you know, a step backwards really because um, they argue that actually all he was asking for was, was something kind of fairly broad that that all of fund fees would be put in one place and you also wanted them to all sign up to this um, statement of principles and in fact only only 25 funds fund houses did that which is only an eighth of the total membership so campaigners are saying you know he wasn't asking for that much and um and funds have not have not been happy but that could mean that in the future you know it's takes a much longer time to bring about this change that a lot of retail investors probably want to see. Yeah, I mean, I think getting a figure in actual pounds and pence of what your investment is is costing and that that figure to include absolutely every item Mm. on the bill um, would be extremely useful for investors. I, I I do understand that it's it's a difficult process because you know there are there are flows in and out of open-ended actively managed funds and all open-ended funds really and you know accounting for those flows within the the costs is is can be a bit mm. tricky um but i mean i don't i don't know what we're going to see next in this story i mean wh- whether um there will be a, um, a further moves to increase transparency or not mm. um, well, it seems like they're kind of will will be realigning the the scope of the agenda and and reappointing a new chief exec so i guess we'll have to see what they what they see as the important things going forward okay well as a magazine we're, we're going to carry on keeping a, a, as close an eye as we can on the costs of investing so there's no change there but um we'll we'll report on any developments in the story when when they happen 
earlier this week, Kate, you also have, have met up with Mike Prentice, who's the manager of BlackRock Smaller Companies. And, and that fund is uh, a member of the IC's Top 100 Funds. Yeah, so the aim of the BlackRock Smaller Companies Fund is to achieve long-term growth by investing primarily in the shares of smaller companies incorporated or listed in the UK, which it considers to have above-average growth prospects. So I went to meet Mike Prentice, the manager, to see what he thought about the health of the UK economy and how that's affecting smaller companies in the UK. Hi, Mike. Hi, Kate. We've had strong results for the first half of the year in the UK, but this morning just heard that the UK's tipped into deflation again. Um, now, have you been surprised by that? And what does that mean for UK companies? Uh, well, we certainly do have quite a lot of exposure to the UK through the companies we hold, uh, particularly UK consumer-related uh, companies. Um, and I suppose the great thing for the UK consumer is that they have more money in their pocket. Mm. Um, they're benefiting from uh, low inflation, lower fuel prices. There is some wage inflation coming through. And of course, we know that employment is going up, unemployment is going down. So the UK consumer is actually in, in, in pretty good shape. So for companies that are supplying the UK consumer, the better companies supplying the UK consumer, they're doing very well. But I mean, so because deflation obviously means that prices for, for us are going down in the shops, but doesn't that mean that for companies, they're taking less money <laughs> on a very basic level? Is that a concern? Uh, well, I mean, uh, the, the better companies, the better run companies with the best offering are doing very nicely. So if you, um, to take an example, uh, a company like, say, JD Sports, which can sell the big brands like Nike and Adidas, is, is doing very well in the UK. It's like for lights have been very strong. And of course, it is gradually increasing its footprint on continental in continental Europe with, 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 with the help of those big brands. So it's doing fine. It's trading extremely strongly. Uh, and the same could be said of many of the other better retailers. You're right that the more mature retailers have been around for a long time. They're not expanding their footprint print uh, that haven't really taken their their offering onto the next step they are they are struggling and will probably continue to struggle and and what about rate rises what would that mean specifically for your fund are there sectors of the uk that would be particularly impacted by rate rises or would you and would you need to reposition is what i'm asking uh i mean there, there there is this sort of feeling that because rates go up there are certain sectors that get hit maybe house builders um uh you know mortgage rates go up and and so on but um uh you know th- i think we're going to see a very very slow increase in in rates when we do see them uh and you know the impact on mortgage rates is probably not going to be very very significant at all i imagine mm. it'll be very very modest so I, I don't feel inclined to sort of radically change my portfolio because of that i mean we are an investor in great companies that can uh, withstand, you know, a few extra pressures uh, and the start of an interest rate uh, rise cycle, modest though I expect it to be. I don't think it's going to be a great threat to the sort of companies we own. Okay. And and let's talk a bit about the fund. Um, so it's obviously a smaller companies fund. I mean, what does that actually mean in terms of the size of company you're investing? 
Yes, well, we 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 invest in uh, predominantly truly small companies. So uh, mo- most of our new investment goes into companies capitalised at less than half a billion pounds, um, which is where we find the best opportunities. But you know, when we when we have a winning company, we like to hold on to it and indeed to add to our stake as time goes by and our confidence goes up. Uh, and so we will run companies uh, up to potentially up to the FTSE 100. You know, we have held companies like Ashdead, Hargreaves Lansdowne in the past, and we've sold them when they've um, made it into the FTSE 100. Um, so at the moment, uh, you know, are the, the guidelines we have uh, with the board allow us to invest in make new holdings in companies capitalised up to £2 billion. So we have quite a bit of freedom in terms of uh, new investment. Uh, but as I say, we prefer to look for the, the slightly less well-known companies. So, I mean, what kind of mix then do you have now in, in small and, and mid-cap? Yeah, um, the, 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 the proportion in sort of truly micro-cap, uh, which sort of less than £150 million market cap, is, is around about 10%. Uh, and um, we have um, you know, the larger part in, in mid-cap, but sort of considerably less than some other uh, uh, small-cap trusts. What what kind of figure? Uh, well, we haven't published any figures on that um, uh, since uh, since April, but we have we have roughly forty percent in in the mid-cap. And are those index. mainly things that have grown as you've held on to them? Or, yes, or absolutely they... that. Yes, yes. We, 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 we like to run our winners. And uh, so they tend to start off as small cap investments and uh, then become mid cap investments. And eventually uh, we might have to sell them. OK. And you're also able to invest in AIM, aren't you? And what, what does we that do. give you that you can't get elsewhere? Well, there are some, there are some very good companies on AIM. Um, uh, yeah, and there are companies like CVS Group, the, the leading veterinary surgeries business uh, with over 300 surgeries in the UK. It's grown very well. It's been a fantastic performer uh, for us over the last year. Um, uh, interesting company called Clinogen we saw yesterday. Emis Group, a healthcare software company, which is quite a big holding. So these are really good companies, um, uh, very profitable. Um, some of them have got really unique technology. They, they tick all the boxes for us. So we like to hunt for the best companies, whether they're fully listed or listed on AIM. And is it hard to find the good opportunities at good valuations now, or are there, uh, there it's around? harder? It's harder because markets have moved up, um, uh, and so there are uh, fewer stocks on low P ratios, current year P ratios. But I think there are a whole series of metrics we need to consider. But um, in smaller companies, what what you learn over time is that we have a winning company. Uh, you don't want to focus too much on the valuation because if you start taking profit too early on those, you can miss out on a real winner. Uh, on the whole, the, the, the very big companies that make it into the FTSE 100 still have to start off as small companies, and so they can start within our universe, as indeed you know, did companies like um, Hargreaves, Lansdowne, and Ashstead was in our you know, universe, was quite a small company not so very many years ago. So the key thing is to buy those identify the right companies and then continue to run them mm. and then let's talk a bit about performance because over the short term um kind of looking at three months returns have been fairly flat but if we look over the longer term the the trust has returned a lot hasn't it over 100 percent over three years and over 10 years the nav has, has more than trebled um how happy have you been with performance over over the longer term 
Well, the 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 approach we take is very much a long term view, uh, and so you know we are we are trying to be uh, to invest in great companies, um, to be consistent, uh, and to adopt a, a relatively low risk approach. So we're very well diversified. Um, so yes, you're right. Over ten years, and I have run the trust now. In fact, I've just I've run it now for just over thirteen years. Uh, but over ten years, uh, the NAV is up. Uh, well, it's it's more than trebled. We have also outperformed our benchmark in every single year that I've managed this trust. Our year end is February. And all that sounds obviously very good. But why is it then that smaller companies trusts tend to trade on on quite wide discounts? when they've got all that going for them? <laughs> it's, it's a very good question, uh, and um, uh, it's not easy to answer that question. I think the discounts are narrower than they were a number of years ago, and there are fewer trusts than there were uh, going back sort of six or seven years. Uh, but there are still you know, quite a number of trusts, and uh, I think the market uh, looks at smaller companies and thinks that liquidity can be uh, not that great at times, and, and that's why they tend to trade on... Uh, uh, on, on discounts, um, and we're talking discounts typically between eight and twelve percent is a sort of fairly normal range. I think it just provides investors with um, with a good opportunity to uh, to buy these uh, uh, trusts at a, an attractive price, really. But I guess what what are the risks that the market's perceiving? Uh, I think I think the market believes that smaller companies are riskier because they're small. But of course, the, the the funny thing about many small companies is that they're not risky. They've got great great management teams who are actually able to, able to manage because these are businesses that are not too uh, amorphous and huge. Uh, so they can they can be quite fleet of foot, and they can really grow these companies. Um, and uh, that that. That, that they are often very cash generative, so they often have uh, very strong balance sheets, which some of the largest companies uh, in the FTSE 100 don't have, actually. They're quite highly geared. Uh, so this, there's this perception that they're risky, but actually they're not. Uh, of course, come a recession, then um, they, are more, they are more vulnerable uh, to you know, orders being deferred or destocking, uh, and, and that's why they tend to suffer more Mm. Uh, in share price terms going into recession. But operationally, for many of those companies, a recession is a great time to gain market share. On the whole, it's best not to buy them heading into recession. That's an interesting point, really, because we do always hear that domestic-facing stocks and, and maybe smaller UK stocks are are a good way to play a recovery. Mm. Um, I mean, do you think the opportunity is now passed for us in the UK or, or is now a good time to be buying smaller companies? Well, the, the market's sort of uh, uh, bottomed out in March 2009, and they've had a fantastic run since then. Um, it's quite hard to judge where we are in the economic cycle. You know, these don't feel like great times. The risk is when, when everybody becomes overconfident and overbuoyant, and I, and I don't sense we're anywhere near that. Uh, so uh, my expectation is that the the next sort of serious downturn is likely to be at least three years away i have to say for for investors in this trust um but we we talked about the, the returns over the long term over 10 years and uh clearly the 10-year period i quoted when the nav uh went up more than threefold did include the worst recession we've ever known so but if you get your timing wrong then clearly you can lose money <laughs> okay all right well um, i think that's probably just about all we've got time for so thank you very much mike Thanks, Kate, for that interview. And now to another IC Top 100 fund. That's Finsbury Growth and Income Trust. 
Now, its manager, Nick Train, is well known for his buy and hold investment strategy and his emphasis on on brands. He's a a bit like sort of like a Warren Buffett for the UK. And he only tends to buy something when when he really finds a good idea. So he can go several years without buying anything. But actually, this year... Recently, he's bought something. So, Leonora, um, you've, you've, you've written the story. What, what has he done? Um, yes, um, for the first time in four years, uh, Nate Trains added a new share to Finsbury Growth and Income Trust. Uh, and it's actually an overseas share, um, Remy Cointreau, um, which is a, a, an alcoholic drinks company. It's perhaps not that different to what he's got in there already. Um, he holds um, Diageo. And um, his last purchase was also an overseas share, um, Heineken, a, a Dutch brewer. Um, now, he says uh, the reason he's been looking overseas is because he can't find a suitable U candidate in the UK for his portfolio. It is a, it is mm. really a UK fund, though, isn't it? It is, it? Yes. yeah. But UK funds can put a certain percentage of their assets in overseas shares. Um, in the investment trust, I think that's a bit more flexible. Um, and Nick actually says in his commentary, he says he has a permitted allocation for this investment trust of up to 20% of non-benchmark stocks. So this falls into that category as benchmarks of FTSE All Share because it's an equity income fund. Um, now, the reason reason he likes um, this share, Amy Quantro and also Heineken, is that they're both well-regarded brands and um, they're not directly represented in the UK market. Um, they've both got a long history, so they've been about, they're fairly solid and they've survived through a lot of things. And, and they're controlled by a family of large shareholding. Now, Nick really likes this um, and he says that our investment approach tends to chime well with companies of large families, shareholdings, a family's concern for dynastic survival often means making appropriate long-term investments. Um, and he says at the same time, families are unlikely to sanction the type of balance sheet engineering that boosts, um, also boosts short-term value while putting company survival at risk. So I think, like with a lot of his holdings, he's looking for the long term. Um, he admits that you know Remy's um, it's suffered a bit recently because of like China slowing down, but you know it's US business is doing well and I think what he has in mind here you know here's a here's a company that you know has been about for like you know um something like I don't know 100 200 something years um you know it's not going anywhere even if there's a bit of you know market volatility um and um I'll, I'll touch on one of his other shares actually um I mean he's also held Burberry for a long time. Now, Burberry's been in the news this week because its shares, I think, at one point tanked 11% because of the slowdown in China. Um, Burberry's actually is 5% of Finsbury Growth and Income's portfolio, and he also holds it in um, his UK open-ended fund. Um, now, he hasn't issued any public comment, but I think, again, it's an example of him finding you know, a good company, a good brand, um, all right, there's going to be short-term movements, but in the long term, you know, hopefully it'll pay off. Well, it's certainly an interesting approach. Um, I'm afraid um, that's all we have time for today. So thanks to Leonora and Kate of the Investors Chronicle. And thanks also to my special guest, Adrian Lowcock of AXA Wealth. You can read more about Mr and Mrs A's portfolio, Global Smaller Companies Funds and Finsbury Growth and Income Trust in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening. <laughs>